Welcome to the Constructing Greatness Podcast, where I will be sharing real stories with inspiring tradesmen and many other driven and passionate leaders in construction and various other industries. I'm your host, Nicholas Ofak, and I've been in the construction business since 1996 as a construction manager and have worked for some of the largest builders in the United States. I'm now a business owner entrepreneur, and partner in a firm where we've successfully managed to be listed on the Inc. 5000, America's fastest growing private companies three years in a row. The main purpose of this podcast is to inspire and create awareness about the value of working in the trades and to educate about the great benefits and rewarding opportunities it can create. Are you ready to take this fun journey with me? Let's do it. Did you know that you should never use paints or coatings on brick, block, stone, or mortar? It's because it needs to breathe. Instead, you can stain it to any color that you'd like, and yes, even the mortar too. Staining is 100% maintenance-free and permanent, unlike coatings. So why don't more people know about it? We wondered the same thing. MNN Masonry Staining is a South Jersey contractor that has partnered with the oldest brick staining manufacturer in the United States and is certified to use their proprietary products and over 45 years of staining knowledge. MNN is scheduling residential and commercial building estimates now. For more information, call Nick at 856 217 1750. Or follow M&N Masonry Staining on any social media platform. Today's guest I recently got to know on the site of his amazing construction project expansion. He's the co-president at Diggerland USA Construction Adventure Theme Park and Water Park. Jan Gurlia, welcome to the show. How are you? Great, man. I'm, again, I really appreciate you joining me today and, and to talk about your journey in construction and everything you have going on. I'm honored to be here. So I wanted just to go back to the beginning. I, I see you went to Drexel University. Well, what did you take up at Drexel? So Drexel, I took civil engineering with a, uh, a request to go for construction management. Now, when I went, Drexel only offered construction management as a postgraduate course, which means I had to go through five years of engineering and just to get into uh, the construction management course. To me, the civil engineering aspect of it was a little bit boring. My father is a civil engineer, but he only practiced it when you know, he graduated school and afterwards it was a completely different uh, world. Uh, I also went to uh, Delaware County Community College. They offered a construction management course. They had a, an awesome course out there. Everything that I was taught, they taught me out there. As a matter of fact, at Delaware County Community College, what I liked about it is, uh, because I also went to Drexel, they said, if you want to test out of certain classes, you can. And I said, well, let me test out of these classes. So I did, and I was able to test out of like 80% of my classes. Then everything else was a breeze through there. And so that's my uh, education. But the most important thing about education is what I got from my father and mother, right? So my parents are in the construction business, uh, were in the construction business, now they're retired. But everything I learned was from them. And then they threw me to the wolves, which were their project managers and their superintendents, which treated myself and my brother like the lowest guys on the totem pole. 
because as soon as they got a hold of us, it was like the revenge and the punishment for their bosses. Oh, that's fantastic. That's how you learn, right? That's how you, you learn. learn. You learn from the ground up. Yes. <laughs> so I see that you went to Cherry Hill West, and I'm bringing that up because I actually played college baseball with a handful of Cherry Hill West guys. What year did you graduate? Just curious. 91. 91. Okay. They were 92. Do you happen to know Walt Clymer? Yes, Walt Clymer. Yeah, I called him Walter. I kind of mispronounced the name on purpose. Walter was great. There was Bo. I mean, there was so many. Yeah, Bo Gray. Guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many baseball guys out there. I mean, everybody who was in my class, either higher or lower, were all into baseball. I mean, we won just about every single championship the year before and after I graduated. It was, the, the baseball team was unbelievable. They were the really, really good. That I was on. Completely disaster. <laughs> yeah, I just noticed that you went there, and I wanted to ask you that. Uh, yeah, a bunch of good guys and and great ball players. So, back to high school. Did you know that you wanted to get into construction because your family was into construction? Did you already know that path early on? Absolutely. So, the history was my father started his construction company here in 1983. But uh, let me go back a little bit. So. I wasn't born in this country. I was born in the former Soviet Union in the Republic of Moldova. To get a perspective of what's going on in world history right now, Moldova is actually southwest of Ukraine. It's the poorest of all the countries out of the whole entire Russian uh, communist area. My grandparents were farmers. I think my parents were the first to get an education. Like I said, my father was an engineer. For the quote-unquote Russian military at the time, he built everything from big silos to food production plants to hydronuclear power plants. I mean, everything and anything, he was the go-to guy. And so, you know, that's the little bit of a history of, you know, where I came from and and my education. So when we were kids, uh, my brother and I always tagged along with my dad to every construction site that he had because he was working for somebody at the time. Uh, we learned things out there. So when he was going out on a Saturday, mom said, take the boys, take them out there, get them out of my hair. So my brother would be out there. We were, you know, kids, you know, eight years old, nine years old. And um, my dad was busy and he was laser focused on his job. Uh, even granted, he had a little bit of a, late, uh, a language barrier, but he was always committed to what he need, what needed to do. And he was always respectful of his bosses. Not like today where, you know, some people are not. Uh, he was laser, laser focused. So when we would go out to the construction sites, my dad would like, hey, go do something. Go clean something up. Here's a shovel. Even though, you know, we were just out there just to have a good time. Or he would say, go get that skid steer. And we learned how to run a skid steer when we were like nine years old. I mean, it was great. So when I got into high school, I still remember Dr. Brown was our uh, history teacher in ninth grade. And there was probably 20 some kids, 22 kids in the class. And uh I remember he asked everybody day one, he wore a suit and a tie all the time. Dr. Brown said, uh, we're going to recognize everybody's names. So what I want you to do is say your name and say what you want to be in the future. Like, you know, John Doctor or something like that, right? So I'm hearing everybody, everybody wants to be an accountant, an attorney, you know, a painter, all these, you know, dreams that everybody wants to do. He comes around to me and goes, and your name, young man, I'm like, young contractor. Everybody's like, what's a contractor? <laughs> right. I was like, I want to build things. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that's, I was known the ninth grade young contractor. That's my name. 
So that, I mean, I learned things, you know, very young that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, that's my passion. I mean, as a kid, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but they were able to get me clay and I would build things out of clay. Or if I was able, uh, lucky enough to get Legos from my mom that she would buy stuff because she was, you know, working and trying to make ends meet. If we were lucky enough to get Lego, we would build stuff out of Legos. I mean, that's what we did. Yep. Love it, Jan. And I can relate a lot with, you know, my family were business owners and I was the kid out helping the family, of course, with the business, but I was always out doing my thing and just building things constantly. So I'm certainly in the right, uh, the right industry. (laughs) It makes you feel good because you get to see things after you get all said and done. And, uh, you know, as a kid, you know, you build certain stuff and you go back and say, oh, I I built that. Or like, you know, my brother and I go out, you know, we looked at a heavily wooded uh, part of Cherry Hill and my brother and I would go in the, in the back of the woods. My dad would always salvage everything. You know, we had his business and truckloads of bricks and block and, you know, wood would come back, cut off pieces, short pieces. Long, and we would just take all that and we'd just go to the back of the woods and build our own tree houses and stuff like that. And the neighbors would be like, the kids are going to get hurt or stuff like that. And next thing you know, we had the rest of the neighborhood kids helping us build stuff. I mean, it was just fun. So much fun. I would build boats and, and styrofoam boats and build build a fort in the middle of a pond, you know, like just crazy stuff that it just kept me so busy. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I don't know if kids are doing these things anymore, but yeah, uh, you know, it's different. But it's, it's a great education. You pretty yeah. much almost sometimes self-taught. Yeah. I love it. So after college, I guess you were put right into Sambi Construction, right, with your father. You started in 94. You were there about 20 years. What made you leave in 2014? Is, and also, is, is the business still active? So my dad shut down the business. Diggerland was pretty much the last of the last projects that he uh-huh. wanted to do. Okay. And that was a time when, and I'll be, and I'll be frank with you and everybody that's listening, at the time that we decided to shut down the business, for me, it was detrimental because that's all I knew, right? I was, you know, I was a self-starter. I, I knew the business is setting out. And my dad goes, we're, we're, it's just so hard to make money. And all the guns are pointed at you. And we were public, con- we were union public contractors, you know? So everything was against us, right? Some, something happens, we're on the hook. If we don't meet the deadline, we're on the hook. If a contractor goes belly up on us, we're on the hook. Everything is like, guns blaring at you and that that was the time when work there was not a whole lot of work at the time we were bidding jobs i could be honest with you you probably hear from other contractors at that time we were bidding jobs at about one and a half to maybe one and three quarter percent and that was negotiated numbers when you know you have to list your subcontractors like your mechanical electrical stuff like that so obviously everybody pre-negotiates those you know there's five trades you have to you have to list so those five trades were pre-negotiated, and then you start negotiating with your concrete guy and your mason and your roofer and your window guy. I mean, our projects were 15, 20, 30 million dollar projects. So they were big dollar value subcontractors, and you were pre-negotiating everything, and then stick your one and a half, maybe one or three quarter percent, and you hope <laughs> you hope you got the job. And then if you did get the job, in some cases you did, then you hope, my God, I hope they can perform. It was it was tough. And at that point, my dad said to us, he said, you know, we're just going at it the wrong way. There's not a whole lot of jobs. We've got 20 guys that are showing up at a, at a bid meeting or at a, at a bid because I was doing all the estimates and I was sending my mom and dad. Sometimes we had two estimates at the same time or an hour apart. So I sent my mom over to one 
you know, opening. My dad would go to another opening. And my brother, even though he wasn't working with us, I would call him up and say, hey, I got three bits going and I need some help. And I would ask him to go out and run a third estimate. I have all these phones, you know, going eight, you know, crazy, giving out numbers or unit prices. I mean, you're in the business, you know, it's it, it could be insane what goes on. So at that point, my dad said, you know what? Um, there's no point to continue. You know, we built a nice business. Uh, we're just, we're going to be losing money if we continue doing what we're doing. So, you know, when uh, at 2014, my dad said, that's it. Uh, see if uh, you can, you know, either go with your brother or do something else. I don't know. I'd rather go with my brother. And we decided to uh, expand and, and move from the water park business we had at Sahara Sands, which is now called Big Kahuna's New Owners. We named it to Diggerman, and that's where we were. That's where we're making our dough in so many words. Got it. So in 2014, Sambi closed shop. Now, it was at Penn Salkin at the time, but weren't you in Marlton for a little while? No, we were initially we started off in Cherry Hill. Was it Cherry Hill? Okay. Yeah. So we started Cherry Hill actually in my dad's den. He had a, a eight by ten den at the house. And he literally outgrew that within a couple of months. And he had an unfinished basement of about maybe eight hundred square feet. So he decided to bring these guys in and we finished the basement. We were at his house in Cherry Hill for about, I want to say maybe two years. And one neighbor in particular, he was the biggest thorn and for obvious reasons because you know trucks and guys would show up at six o'clock in the morning to my dad's house and then my dad would dispatch from there or if he had a meeting with somebody and it was just uh he was constantly calling the, you know, the cops or calling the township and finally um I finally came to the realization that we gotta move. So what happened was my parents found a property next to the trail mall and it was a, um, a two-story building, which we only needed only like a portion of the second floor. So we went ahead and renovated the, the office, moved in, and started renting out the space that we didn't need. And then within a year, we realized that we needed the whole second floor. And so we're kind of operating out of there, and the company grew from there. We had project managers and estimators and secretaries. And, I mean, it's a full-blown construction company. And then we started buying equipment because we started doing some of our own stuff. We had a backhoe, we had a, a CAD 951 crawler. And then when the jobs were done, where do you put them? Well, my dad brought them to the office until the township mayor drove by. We got a call from the zoning office and said, what's that equipment doing out there? Right. You something? can't store it there, right? <laughs> you can't store it. And apparently my dad didn't know at that time the difference between professional zoning and commercial zoning. So when the mayor came over and said, Sam, and they were friends with the mayor, so Sam, you can't have this construction equipment over here. But then goes, why not? I'm, I'm a business. It's like, well, here's the zoning rules. You can't, you got to move it. We'll give you 30 days. Otherwise, we have to start implementing fines for you. And so my parents started looking for an office building that could house everything. Because at that time also, we had the office building in Cherry Hill, and then my parents had a partnership with another company called Ambrick Engineering. No, not Ambrick, but the owner of Ambrick, Don Meisel, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And so what happened was they bought a, an old 1800s uh, textile mill in East Falls. And so my dad would house all the construction equipment or supplies down there. And it was, it was a struggle because your office is in Cherry Hill, then you got to go send the guys over there with a key to open up a, a warehouse and go find something. And it was a nightmare. So anyway, so we, we found a place in Pensalton, completely did a complete renovation uh, of that building. Now we had an office warehouse, loading dock, driving. Everything was under one house, one roof. And 
And uh, so we, just, we were in Pensacola for the last, I don't know, maybe uh, 17, 18 years. Got it. Maybe. Got it. And then you and your brother are co-owners, uh, became co-owners of Sahara Sam's, correct? Yeah. So Sahara Sam's, it was my father and my brother and myself. So my brother was, to go back a little bit. So I put the design together for Sahara Sam's. And together with my father and my brother, we built it. And then once the building was done, my brother ran the operations and I was kind of supporting any kind of expansion. We had four or five expansions at that facility. And so I did all the construction side of things. My dad oversaw everybody. And my, my brother did all the whole entire operation uh, off of Sam's. Gotcha. So you did that till about 2015? Are you, got, are you no longer correct. involved with that? That's correct. Yep. Okay. And then I guess it was 2012, Diggerland happened. And then also 2015, you started UTV Masters. Right. So Diggerland started way earlier. When I say way earlier, because the process in New Jersey, uh, New Jersey is one of the toughest states in, in the country with respect to amusement laws. It's very safe, but the process takes forever and ever and ever to get approval. So. Diggerland took about four plus years with all the engineering, with all the testing, with everything impossible to get it off the ground. So we started construction of Diggerland, I remember the date specifically, December 18th of 2013. And our objective was to be open right before Memorial Day of 2014, very short time frame. We had uh, 14 acres to develop and make it into the Diggerland at that time. We've made a lot of uh, strides and changes since then. Uh, learned a lot of stuff that uh, improved the facility, but we had a lot of stuff to do during that time. I mean, we're talking about, we had to move 140,000 yards of dirt, uh, export about uh, 40 to 50,000 yards of material, build almost uh, 3,500 linear feet of retaining wall, different heights, 14,000 feet of fencing, between all the queue lines and, and protection, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of work going on. Yeah, it's it's a sizable, sizable uh, lot for sure. So UTV Masters, to answer your question on UTV Masters, UTV Masters was developed when my brother decided as we're adding different operations or different stuff to Diggerland, we wanted to add another attraction. The attraction was a Argo made in Canada. So when we got into and we bought five machines from them, they automatically made you a dealer. So by becoming a dealer, we decided let's explore the uh, opportunity of renting these vehicles because people are looking to either hunt or need it for a job and stuff like that. So we opened up UTV Masters. But what we realized is that there are other UTV companies out there that have Argos in the Pennsylvania marketplace. And we couldn't figure out how come the business wasn't going the way we wanted to go. We realized that New Jersey does not allow you to operate on their private property with UTVs. So most people would have to go to Pennsylvania. So when you go to Pennsylvania, there's other dealers of that they can rent the equipment from. So, you know, as we ran through the business and stuff like that with Argo, we started selling their parts for other people. There was a lot of engineers, a lot of construction companies that had Argos, but they didn't know either how to repair them or couldn't get the parts. So as being a dealer, we buy parts for our own Argos. We're able to fix their equipment and obviously sell them parts. 
Okay. Yeah. Looking on the website a little bit, UTV, if people don't know, it's, it's, it's a utility task or terrain vehicles and those frontier with tracks that, that would be the one that I would want to get. How, how fast, how fast do they, they go? Uh, we had them going up to about 20 miles an hour. Uh, and that's pretty quick. And what's nice about them is uh, we had a, a six wheel and eight wheel vehicles. And then in certain cases you put on uh, plastic tracks, you put on plastic tracks, you know, or the asphalt, man, those things are slickers. <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of fun. But not a whole lot of fun when you go through uh, regular sand, but they were a lot of fun. Yeah, they're super cool looking. Back to Diggerland. Now, just doing a little research on the origin. There's four Diggerlands in England, and the one that you guys are co-presidents and owners of is the only one in USA currently, correct? That's correct, yes. So at the moment right now, there's actually three Diggerlands in the UK. They decided to shut one of them down for, I guess, either attendance reasons. I mean, COVID had to do a lot of it. So they decided to shut it down and move their assets or sell out their assets and, you know, not have a major loss uh, during COVID. From what I understand also right now is they're looking to reopen it again, which is great news for, you know, that are Eastern the European market as well. But yes, we are the only land in the United States. Very cool. And, and I mean, just to explain to people how neat it is, especially if your kids haven't been there, you know, just the construction different vehicles and different equipment that you're allowed to operate. Diggerland was inspired by Diggers and JCBs, which is a British manufacturer, correct? JCBs. And so all the equipment are JCBs, right? That you most have? Yeah, most of the equipment are JCBs. We pretty much have all their basic machines from JCB. So just a little bit of history of JCB. So JCB, JCB actually created the backhoe. I'm sure a lot of people know that. And then a lot of manufacturers from there took their design and just started copying and modifying the actual backhoe concept. And then uh, the skid steer is the only skid steer out there where you don't have to enter through the front of the cab. You can actually have a, a go through the side of the cab. So it avoids a lot of tripping, falling, and stuff like that, twisting your body to get into the, into the seat. Now, the JCB also makes the skid steer for the Volvo. So if you've ever seen a Volvo a skid steer and a JCB skid steer, they're identical. They're made in Georgia and the Savannah. They come up with the plant and uh, one goes right, one goes left. Uh, just like a lot of stuff like with uh, John Deere equipment, right? So you have John Deere Hitachi, pretty much the same machines like John Deere Arctic trucks are made by Bell. Not anymore. John Deere took over and now they're making their own Arctic trucks. And there's a lot of stuff like that that happens in the industry. But we do have other equipment that we use. Terex is, uh, is here also. We have uh, Genie, which is owned by Terex. We have Kubota equipment. You name it, we pretty much have our hands on a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that we actually uh, start making ourselves, a lot of custom um, machines as well. No, I love it. And, you know, as as you know, I've been out there recently with you. My new company that I'm partners in, M&M Staining, it's actually our first project that, you know, we are actually doing. And we just finished up for you. We stained your water, your wave pool rock wall. And it was just fun to be involved with. I had a relationship with Vincent Pools, who's your commercial contractor, pool contractor. And uh, it seemed to go very well. And we're just we're just excited to be a part of it. Very, very tiny, tiny part of it. But it's a very, very cool expansion. Do you have more expansions coming after that wave pool? So we're currently doing, we, had, we just finished two rod expansions uh, at Bigger Land, besides the pools. We actually converted our uh, roller course 
from a gas engine to diesel engines. So now we have Dynapax as our uh, diesel rollers. Very awesome machines, very uh, solid built machines. We're also in the process of finishing up a new attraction right now. But now it's we received part of the shipping now. The other portion of it is we have it in the powder coating. So hopefully we can reveal it within the next, I don't know, maybe a month, maybe less. Uh, so I got to put it all together. Uh, so that's going to be an awesome, awesome attraction. And who knows what the future holds? I mean, we got approvals right now to put a, a massive slide structure. We hope we to put it in next year or the following year or maybe combine it with something more. So we, we're constantly, we, we, we're like drunk sailors. Right? We can't sit still. We've got to invest in our business. What is, we're spending a, a boatload of money. We obviously, obviously have a good return on it, but we're, we're like the restaurant that's constantly changing. You go to a restaurant, it's like the same menu, but we got a different menu every single year that people show up. Yep. And if you don't know Jan, he's the guy that's out there. He's getting dirty. He's out there doing it. I mean, you know, when I, I obviously knew of you, Jan, you know, you knew your name for some time, but got to know you a little bit out on site, but you're just, you're moving and grooving the whole time and it's fun to watch. I can't sit still. I gotta, you know, I'd rather work shoulder to shoulder with somebody than sit back and just put my finger and say, do this to that. Right. Yeah. Now, nah, good stuff. How did COVID impact you guys at all? It was pretty bad. So at time COVID hit was in March. We opened Diggerland mid-March. We were able to open Saturday and Sunday. On Sunday, we had governor's orders to shut everything down. In the meantime, as we're shutting down our operation, we're still building our phase one pool construction. And so there's different orders about who can work, who can't work. A lot of people were just uncomfortable with a lot of stuff. And this is where politics come in place, right? So a little bit later in New Jersey, especially, they issued an order saying that if you're not working on the public contract, you cannot be operating. But there was different caveats in the law which you can kind of circumvent. And a lot of people in my industry, which is the amusement industry, were able to circumvent because if it's under repair or renovation, there was things that were carved out the kind of, if you can find the loophole, you're in good shape. And the attorneys for the amusement station were able to carve out those things to kind of keep us moving. But what was really unfair was when you take a look at the overall regulation and how they were making things work, they were saying that, well, if you're a public contractor and you're building a school or you're building a prison or you're building a college or public funds are involved or you're building a highway, you can go to work. Well, what's the difference between building that school and building that shopping center? Because one is public money, so you got to get it done, and the other one is private money, so you can't get it done. That was a little bit unfair. And I thought that's, you know, so New Jersey-like, it's unbelievable. But what am I? I'm just a, a guy who pays taxes and has to live by the law. But we, we had, uh, you know, I'll give you honest. I mean, my, my, my union contractor that does a lot of work, my concrete work, and has been doing all my concrete for the last 30 years, he was telling me he was driving to work and he got stopped by the police at six o'clock in the morning. And the cops go, Where are you going? And he says, Well, I'm going to work. What are you doing? I was like, I'm pouring concrete. No, no, no you got to go home. I was like, No, you understand. I'm building a firehouse. That's mission critical project. I'm allowed to do that. And the cop goes, yeah, you're right. You can't. You let him go. I'm like, this is insane. I mean, at the time, what we didn't know, we didn't know. You know, so it was tough. It was tough. So to answer your question, we had a major impact because when we got shut down, 
we missed obviously spring break, which is for every amusement industry is huge. We missed Memorial Day, that was huge. And then as our legislators and our associations were talking behind everybody's back, because that's what everybody does, they allowed the amusement association to open up on July 2nd, to at least get July 4th in and start doing something. And so what happened was our association told us that the governor's going to be allowing us to do that. So we all, all of us, uh, amusement parks down, down the shore, uh, you know, inland, anywhere in the, in, the, in the state, we were given literally three weeks to get all of our employees in check, get them all hired, get our F&B locations up to snuff, pack those refrigerators and open for July 2nd. So we were in a mad rush to hire the employees because, you know, all of us have either full-time employees, which are our core people, then you have your part-time employees, your ride operators, your, your kitchen staff, your ticket people. We had to hire all those kids back and some we, we couldn't hire. And it was just a nightmare. And, but we got through. And the first, and then, you know, obviously we missed a lot of income. So we were behind the eight ball already. And so when we opened, obviously everybody's kind of scared because their mask mandate, six foot rules, we had to create signage, we had to stop, do stuff in the queue lines. And it was, it was just a nightmare. And so the first week, I'm going to be honest with you, it was skeptical at first. But the following week, it seemed like everybody had enough and everybody's going to go and enjoy life as much as they possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I assumed you had some impact. I had a few people, actually many people who recently learned that we were doing work at Diggerland and just how much they loved it with their kids. And they so happy that you guys survived COVID and, and you know, is able to continue. And the expansions are exciting, too. If anyone listening hasn't been out there, you got to check it out. It's the only one in the United States. Do you think there'll be more that are going to open up in the States? Yeah, so there is one uh, facility that literally copied everything that we did, copied some of our uh, intellectual properties, which we had to tell them to cease and desist. They're going to be honest. They opened up in, uh, in Texas. They opened up and they shut down. I think they opened back up. They claimed it was capacity issues. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I can't judge. Uh, it's their business, but there's a, I'm sure there's going to be other companies out there that are going to try to mimic what we do with kids and adults. We do have sort of a, a competition in Las Vegas and in uh, Minnesota, where it's a, uh, a pretty much geared more or less towards adults entertainment with heavy construction equipment. They've been there before us, but our focus is more or less uh, as a true typical amusement park, right? Kids, adults, both get to participate. They're beginning to do a little bit more and more with kids with uh, more mini machines than anything else uh, and kind of seeing what we're doing and sort of duplicating that, which is fine. And competition is great. I mean, I can't say I'm going to be the only ones all the time in, in this country, but it is what it is. I mean, um, you know, it's nice that people are out there and doing stuff, but I just wish that they would not copy verbatim <laughs> what we do, you know? It's easier, right, to copy? It is a lot easier, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for people that don't know where you're located, it's in West Berlin, right on Pine Edge Drive, and it's right next to Sahara Sam's. It's a great, great spot. And just one last question about it. How did you guys get involved with it, you know, with, with your, your father getting connecting with, with you know, the, the um, you know, where it was established in the UK? Yeah, so in, uh, in 2007, 
uh, the economy, if you remember, started taking a major downturn. And construction industry works a little bit differently than the overall industry in the United States. And the reason why is the construction industry gets to see things downturn a lot later than upfront because work is already progressing or has been going on. So you work, you're burning off that, that workload. And as we were burning off the workload and, we, and the economy was already in the toilet and the stock market was taking a beating and stuff like that, we started looking at to see what's our future, where are we going. We amassed a massive amount of heavy equipment. We pretty much had, as a general contractor, we had as much equipment as most site contractors that we hired at the time, and which is insane. And so we were concerned because we had millions of dollars worth of heavy equipment sitting around. So what are we going to do with, it, with this heavy equipment? So my brother started researching to see what can be done, and he found something in the UK. And he presented to my father and I at a family holiday dinner, with all the family members being there. And initially, I was extremely skeptical. I said, I could not, in my mind, imagine how this would work. Because I'm used to seeing, you know, you know, John Deere 300 excavators and, you know, CAD, you know, D6s and stuff. I cannot see how a kid operated that. I, I could not grasp the concept. And so my brother explained to me what he found, showed me a couple of pictures, so showed me some videos that people took uh, from YouTube and stuff like that. And I kind of got a wind of what it really is all about. So at that time, we started pursuing that uh, avenue. What we didn't want to do is we didn't want to copy or recreate the wheel. We wanted to be what they were because they already had years and years of experience. They set it all up. And so we actually approached them. My brother approached the ownership over there. It took a while. And the reason why it took a while is because he said, listen, I'll be honest with you. Everybody's calling me. Everybody wants to do this. He said, if I had a, he said, if I had a pound, which is like, you know, the currency, if I had a pound for every time somebody asked me, I, I could retire. I said, because everybody wants to know what it's all about, but nobody wants to invest. And it's a major investment. And brother goes, listen, we're willing to invest. The money is not the problem. I mean, we have know-how and everything else. We're in the business. We have entertainment. We have construction. I mean, it's, it's a win-win. So months and months and months of email and talking, stuff like that, I finally said, okay, if you're that serious and I see you're very persistent because nobody else is persistent, come on down and we'll talk. And that's what we did. Excellent. Yeah, stuff like that, I can only imagine, you know, how long it takes, just the, the, the contractual piece too alone, and, uh, and obviously the development of the site, which is massive. Hey guys, it's Nick. I have a short message from our sponsor, MPC Builders. With well over 40 years of combined construction-related experience in both the residential and commercial markets, MPC Builders services the New Jersey and Philadelphia metro areas. Check out our website at mpcbuilders.net or you can call me directly at 856-217-1750 and I'd be happy to answer any questions you have about your construction project. And outside of work, which you're obviously super passionate about, what, what do you like to do? Here's the problem. The problem is, is that my whole entire life, I will work seven days a week, right? I'm married, I have a family, but still, every single moment, it's work, work, work. I still remember my daughter's 15 years old right now, right? When she was born, and, you know, obviously, I stayed about a week, maybe less, at home while 
my wife was nursing her. I still remember we had a big contract and stuff like that. And I just cannot be out of the office because I was like the second guy in command for my father's company. Up all the paperwork home. And I still remember I'm rocking her in her cradle as I'm writing contracts and doing schedule of values and putting a schedule together and answering my phone. And my wife was like, what the hell are you doing? I was like, I'm working. What do you want me to do? I can either do it here or I can go to the office. You tell me which one I should be doing. So, yeah, I really don't have a hobby. I mean, I got into firearms, but that was short-lived. Uh, I, my brother and I decided to, with my father to invest into a boat. We bought a small little 24-foot boat so we could actually spend time on it. And then all of a sudden, all the family members and friends realized, you have a boat. They all want to be on the boat. So we got, we were overloaded the boat and we realized we should get a bigger boat. So we bought a bigger boat and now we got more friends that we can know who they, those people were, but nobody wants to put money in for fuel and nobody wants to stay afterwards to clean the boat. Finally say, you know what? Enough of enough. Sell the boat, sell everything. I don't want to have none to do with it. So that was my hobby and that was work, work, work. And that's, you know, I wish I could say, hey, I like to go play golf. I don't know anything about golf. I don't know anything about anything else. I think honestly, I, I, I enjoy what I do. It's sometimes stressful, but at the end of the day, I can look back and I say, you know, I, I know I did the best I could do. I built something that I love to look at and, and, and see that I, my name is on that. It, it's great. I mean, I can tell you for sure that like when you build a building or a highway and you can drive by and say, I built that or show your kids or maybe in the future, your grandkids, that granddad or grandma or whatever built that and still there, it's the biggest thing that you can ever imagine because you get smiles all over the place you know i mean there's i pass a, a school a elementary school that i built i don't know 15 years ago and every time i drive by with my family it's a daddy built that school daddy built that middle school uh, you know daddy built that courthouse i mean it's it's, it's great seeing them it is it gives me so much joy too and I know, I know my wife and kids are tired of me saying you know i built that i was involved in that you know every time we drive into philly they're tired of hearing it now. I know exactly what you mean. And back to you loving what you do, you're passionate about it. it. There's nothing wrong with that's what you want to do because you love it. You're passionate about it. And it's not uncommon. A lot of people that have been on the show can relate. I do try to find golf time. But besides that, I love what I love what I do, too. Love it. Yeah, I mean, um, I used to get the ER magazine all the time. I would love the articles. I would read the magazine from, from the cover to the back. I would love to, when they came out with the top 100, top 500 contractors, subcontractors, and look at their stats and look at how they were doing and what was the previous year, you know, dollar value total, how many contracts they had. I love that stuff. I would follow everybody. I still remember following, you know, Ron Tudor from uh, uh, Tudor Construction, then he bought Perini. I mean, I would follow, I mean, I would, people would follow sports people. I would follow construction guys. I mean, it would be insane. A lot of stuff about a lot of people. You follow Tishman. Construction, you know, when Tishman got, you know, bought out, it's, it's just, it's great stuff. For me, it was enjoyable because that's what I love to do. Yep. So if a young, young boy, girl, you know, young man, young lady is interested in construction, but doesn't know how to get started, what would your advice be to get started? You got to have the passion and you got to have the energy to say, okay, I'm going to start somewhere where I'm going to be the lowest guy on the totem pole. I'm going to have either real good people that are going to teach me or I'm going to have real SOBs who are going to push me around like a rag. So you got to be prepared for that because we know in our business, there are two types of people, those who want to take it under their wing 
and teach you if you're willing to be taught. And there's those people who really don't belong in our business and really set up a bad precedent for this great industry and who want to take advantage of you. If you're willing to start at the bottom and learn your way through the top, this is a great business because there's a lot of enjoyment. Like when I entered this business, when I was 16 years old and I started working in the summertime for my father, and he was, at that time, he was doing both residential construction and commercial. I was the guy who was with the rake at a show. I was the guy who was listening to everybody and tell, they were telling me what to do. And I learned a lot of stuff. I learned everything from you know, how to lay concrete, how to do masonry, how to do carpentry. I, I, I dealt with some crazy people out there. There was a lot of crazy people back then in the 80s and the 90s. But I learned a lot of stuff. I learned how to operate heavy equipment. I learned electrical stuff. You know, some of the people my dad had working for him were really dedicated people, young guys who knew the business real well, taught me everything from plumbing, from electrical to everything. And I, that's how I learned. You, you watch them, you put your hands together, you got dirty. You know, I still remember, you know, one job, my, you know, my dad sent me on, on the job and he said, listen to what supervisor has to tell you. And he said, you're going to be torn today. I had no idea what it was, but he gave me a roller and a brush and some black tar and you know, by the time I was done, I was fully covered, and my mom was picking me up from the construction site. She's like, you're not sitting in this car. It's like, you get some newspapers like a dog, and I have newspapers a little bit, so that's how I learned. But, you know, if you're willing to learn, I mean, you can make a lot of money. And you've heard in the past that uneducated construction people can make more than some of the educated people. And that's for a fact, because a good project manager today can make easily six figures. A good superintendent, a general superintendent, can make a tremendous amount of money. I had guys working for my father who were making more than me, working five days, and I was working six or seven days, making more money because of their knowledge. And that's the most important thing. The most important guy on that construction site is the superintendent, and second guy command is the project manager. Those guys don't know how to run that that job site. The whole the whole project is in deep deep trouble. So you can make a lot of money if you're good at it. Doesn't matter male or female, black or white, brown or green. You can make a lot of money. You just have to be dedicated. You have to be. You, you got to be able to take critical advice because sometimes you don't like to hear what people have to say. But you, you can argue. That's fine. Just step back and listen to what somebody has to tell you because they're telling you because there's a reason why they're telling you. They're not telling you to bust your nuts, excuse my French, but they're telling you so you can, you know how to do it right. And there's been a lot of good architects that I've dealt with and a lot of poor architects, a lot of great construction managers and some not so well. So there is, I mean, you can make a decent dollar working in this business. Yep. And people, I don't think people really have any clue of what some of these guys can make. And back to superintendents, Deep in the six figures. I mean, a general superintendent can make two hundred fifty thousand easily in this market right now. It's incredible money, and then and some of them who are union, if there's overtime involved, could even make more. I mean, even even the carpenter foremans, you know, electrical foremans, they're deep in the six figures. It's it's a uh, it's a great living. Yeah, my general superintendent who was with us for he was the longest uh, guy with us thirty two years. He was making I think one hundred fifty seven thousand dollars a year. Clean. Plus, the benefits we were playing to the union hall. He had a company car. He could use it for whatever. Didn't pay anything out of his pocket. Had a cell phone, obviously. 
I mean, it's great living. You know, you show up at work at 6.30, 6.15 in the morning. You're done by 3, 3.30. And that's it. You put a full eight hours in and get everything out of the subcontractors and your employees. And you're making money for your employer. And it's hard work, but also, you know, you're on your feet. You're active. You know, you're burning calories. You're not sitting around. And, and there's so many benefits to it, which I've talked about, you know, at length on this podcast. And I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. It was a great one. And uh, I'm excited to see how growth continues at Diggerland. I wish my kids were were still young, could come out there. We, we, never, we never made it out there, but I'm going to definitely bring them just to check it out. But they're older now, so I don't know if they'll... It's okay. I mean, listen, we started uh, about two years ago during COVID. We started this uh, exploration about trying to figure out what to do with the light show. It was about three years prior that we started exploring and costs and everything else. And uh, we bit the bullet. And uh, in 2020, we started our first light show. Uh, last year was our second year. This year is going to be a third year. And uh, we're growing bigger and bigger. So there is no such thing for us as a, a true off-season uh, because we're Constantly churning and burning and figure out how to make entertainment for the average person. Make it a destination. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Do you want to share your contact information, social media, if anyone wants to get in sure. contact with you? Uh, anybody can email me at yan, Y-A-N, at diggerlandusa.com. And unlike most people, I do respond to emails. And you're very active on LinkedIn, right? Yes, all the time. I like to sh- showcase what I do. I like to keep people in, you know, in check to see what, what's happening with my construction project out here. Plus, I, I do like other stuff that people post out there. You know, there's some silly stuff which I'd look at, but there's some real interesting stuff that people post that I think it's educational for other people to see what's going on out there. Yep. And I love it, Jan. And thanks again. I really appreciate you being a part of the podcast and I uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yep. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Constructing Greatness podcast. If you enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at nicholasofac at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.